Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Wednesday. No, really. It actually is Wednesday. I know they all feel like Wednesday, but it is Wednesday here in the Three Martini Lunch. Glad you're with us. All crazy martinis today, so good and bad martinis get the day off. Jim, good to be with you again. In case anybody's uh, playing at home, Jim is still inside, even though the repair work goes on. So that's, that's a win for today so far. Jim, let's go to our first crazy martini. It comes to us courtesy of Mika Brzezinski. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were saying that we thought Mika actually did a pretty good job interviewing Joe Biden about the Tara Reid allegations. But today, Mika has decided that it's time to get on her high horse. She's decided that it's time for Twitter to censor President Trump. A couple different tweets here. She says, I will be reaching out to the head of Twitter about their policies being violated every day by President Trump. Hope my call is taken. Please retweet if you agree. At Jack, he's the head of Twitter. Please take my call today. Please stop allowing your platform policies to be abused by the day. It's called libel. And finally, at Jack, at what point is Twitter a part of this? Take down Trump's account. The world would be safer. Retweet if you agree. And so, uh, Jim, not only is she uh, looking to uh, stifle free speech here, uh, she's basically already told Twitter before Jack can even get to his inbox, if you don't do this, you're part of the problem. So that's always a good way to win over people. Yeah, I think a good way of summarizing this is that uh, Karen would like to speak to a manager. (laughs) She keeps encountering things on Twitter that she doesn't like to see. Now, if you want to get into something resembling a serious issue here, it's that the guys who created Twitter, look, they're tech guys. They are not uh, media people. They are not from journalism. You probably could put Zuckerberg at Facebook into the same category. They created these platforms, and their whole idea is it's going to be about people talking to people. And they just had this probably wildly naive idea that people talking to people would be a good thing <laughs> and it would only be a good thing, that there'd be no way that people could be posting things on these social media that would be horrifying. Hey, let's beat up this guy and put the video up on YouTube. Uh, hey, let's, you know, we're, we're, we're racist and let's propagandists. Hey, we're Russian disinformation bots. Let's go put this stuff up. It just never crossed their mind that, you know, when you create a way for people to speak to each other, people could use it in bad ways and in ways you don't like. And ever since then, they've kind of been playing catch up of, you know, we, we don't want that on our platform. And their whole idea was like, look, we are not, uh, from the very beginning, they kept, at least for, for years and years, they were insisting we were not a publication. It is not comparable to the New York Times where the editors decide what goes into the newspaper and what gets left out. Yes, I understand if you find it hard to believe that some things get left out of the paper, but trust me, they do, right? They, they, they do put a lot of effort into it, even if you don't agree with the final decision. The producers of social media platforms like Twitter and like Facebook and, argue, and YouTube basically were saying, look, we are not uh, uh, curators. We are not people who select good stuff and put it up there and everything that goes through our platform goes through this editorial decision-making process. We are just effectively the bathroom stall. And what people choose to write on it is their decision. We are, we're, we're just, you know, we, we just give them, it's up to them and that they're the ones who are ultimately responsible, right? After a while, this became untenable and they realized, okay, we got to take some stuff down. We got to take stuff down if it's uh, endangering others. We got to take stuff down if it's, uh, we deem it to be hate speech or trying to stir up stuff, personal information, uh, sexual and pornographic information. You know, there was just certain things underage. There's just certain things we just did not want to see on their platforms. 
And then along comes the president. And the president says things that lots of people like Mika Brzezinski do not want to see on this platform. Now, the question is going to be like, you know, one of the points of this platform is to say, we give everyone a chance to speak to the world. We give, you know, uh, elected officials a way to communicate directly with the public without going through the filter of, of the, you know, the media and, and things like that. And I don't think they ever really confronted something. What happens when the president of the United States starts saying things that are really controversial? We shouldn't be all that surprised. Greg, I can remember, was there a, uh, a president who said we should get in each other's faces? Yes. And, uh, you know, we should, you know, uh, Latinos should punish their enemies. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it was Obama who said these things. And he said these things not on social media, but on, in, in broadcast interviews. Obama would be quick to say, uh, you know, that he did not mean anyone should go out and, and, you know, physically assault each other. Eric Holder would insist, you know, when we go, when they go low, we go lower. Um, when they go low, kick, them, kick the shins, them, right? Yeah. Right, kick them in the, you know, like, they would all say, oh, no, that was just metaphors. I didn't really mean people should go out and harm each other. A lot of these things are going to be in the eye of the beholder. And traditionally, the Supreme Court has been very, very reluctant to let any type of government action step in. Um, the idea of incitement or the idea of trying to get others to uh, inflict violence on others, they've always you know, defined that very narrowly. Um, these social media companies are private companies. They have the right to set their own rules and their own terms of use of their products. But, you know, this is... Guess what, guys? You are a media company and you're on with this. And, and the question is going to be, do they decide, well, Mika Brzezinski says this is offensive, so we're going to have to take this down. Or do they decide, you know, like how do you, how do you make those decisions? Mika Brzezinski has a show on MSNBC that goes on for like two or three hours every morning where she has a big opportunity to say what she wants. And in fact, it's funny. You go back to 2015, early 2016. You know who Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough had on their program a whole lot during that time period? I'm going to Trump. go with Trump. Donald Trump. So. <laughs> Which, by the way, I have a sneaking suspicion that when you see members of the media who seem really, you know, endlessly furious about that, I, I you know, Zucker at CNN, people like that, I wonder if some of that is like this um, long repressed guilt manifesting itself as rage. This, this recognition that they had promoted Trump in uh, the Republican primary because they, they thought he'd be the easiest for, the, for Hillary Clinton to beat. And lo and behold, he turned out to not be that. So that may be the case. I don't know. But uh, that's just my you know, general sense that, uh, uh, you know, that what's being driven by this is this, you know, I, this, this guilt, this recognition that they had an inadvertent role in leading to this moment. And now they want to do everything possible to ensure that, the, you know, uh, Trump does not get a chance to put out things. By the way, I, I can't stand what Trump tweets either. But the idea that, you know, calling over Jack like he's a waiter <laughs> to say, I didn't order this. It's very illuminating about how they see, uh, how they believe Twitter should operate in our modern society. Yeah. Based on her feed here, it looks like she's already got her meeting scheduled. So uh, we'll see if Jack does anything. I doubt that he will because the blowback on this would be absolutely enormous. And uh, I think this is like the Twitter version, Jim, of what Annie McCarthy during the whole Mueller investigation talked about, uh, the criminalization of politics. This isn't a criminalization. Twitter can't press charges or anything. But uh, your speech is, uh, is not okay. We don't agree with what you're saying. And in some cases, of course, Trump might actually be saying things that aren't true. But uh, whether that's a basis for getting the president of the United States deplatformed is a whole other story. But I think it's important to also remind people how to use Twitter appropriately, because if you go there to really uh, find out what other people think about stuff, you're going to end up in the sewer pretty fast. Uh, the reason I use Twitter anyway is to follow the right people because you get breaking news there a lot faster than you will pretty much anywhere else. 
and to find the people that you uh, can rely on for sober analysis instead of bomb throwing. You know, like at Jim Garrity or at Dateline <laughs> underscore DC and, you know, people like that. Just randomly off the top of my head, I'm thinking. Yeah, although I should, Greg, we should probably, like, you know, at least for that first one you listed. Yeah. <laughs> Sundays on Sundays on, on football season, you're going to hear some stuff you did not expect to hear. <laughs> Actually, I, don't tw- I try not to tweet profanity too much, but um, look, Adam Gase is my coach. You got you to cut me some slack, people. All right. Well, let's move on to our second crazy Martini now. And Jim, even with all the scandals surrounding Matt Lauer, I can only hear his name being pronounced in Tom Brokaw's voice, which is uh, Matt Lauer. Uh, of course, just, just very difficult. Unless you never worked with Barbara Walters, but I'm sure that would have been uh, uh, difficult as well. Uh, so Matt Lauer is back in the news today. He wrote a column over at Mediaite. And you'll never guess what his take on Ronan Farrow is. It's that he doesn't think that Ronan Farrow was very fair to Matt Lauer. So uh, I know that's going to take a lot of you by surprise. And so uh, he's uh, written a couple interesting things here, Jim, that I think play fairly well into the recent uh, Joe Biden versus Brett Kavanaugh debate. And he says, uh, I was disappointed but not surprised that Ronan Farrow's overall reporting faced so little scrutiny. Until this week's critical reporting by the New York Times, many in the media perceived his work as inherently beyond basic questioning. However, he was hardly an unbiased journalist when it came to anything to do with NBC, and he was rarely challenged as he dropped salacious stories in a daily marketing effort designed to create media attention for his book. What I found when I read the book was frankly shocking, and it should concern anyone who cares about journalism. This is not just about accusations against the former host of the Today Show. It's about whether changing social attitudes can be allowed to change the most fundamental rules of journalism. It's about whether as journalists we have a responsibility to check facts and vet sources. It's about understanding the difference between journalism and activism. It's about whether we're putting far too much trust in journalists whose publicly stated opinions impact their ability to remain objective. Does this guy ever look in a mirror? Uh, So he talks about how he was uh, aggrieved at NBC, got a show canceled, couldn't get his Weinstein story on the air. And then uh, a lot of his sources are other people who used to work for NBC. And therefore, uh, Farrow was sloppy in his reporting. And a lot of the things he alleged he wasn't able to confirm. So, Jim, you know, you can always uh, take a look at the work people did. Uh, You and I certainly had some questions about Ronan Farrow's reporting on the Deborah Ramirez allegation during the Kavanaugh days. But uh, Matt Lauer, uh, basically uh, saying that Matt Lauer got a raw deal is uh, pretty ridiculous. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here, high among them. This is all prompted by the Ben Smith column, uh, basically contending that Ronan Farrow is not the golden boy and super reliable journalist, uh, you know, shoe leather, you know, uncovering stuff that was that his reputation uh, that was largely created by Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too stories was. You and I did have some objections uh, and that some of his investigation of Brett Kavanaugh really was not up to the usual standards. Um you know, vague descriptions of sources, secondhand, thirdhand, all that kind of stuff. None of this came up in Ben Smith's column, it is worth noting. There's no indication Ben Smith had any problem with the Ronan Farrow reporting during the, uh, uh, the Supreme Court fight. No, no, no. It, it basically was other stories. But of all the people who f- seemed, oh, I did, was, was really looking forward to not hearing from, Matt Lauer was very high on that list. Because if you said to me, Ronan Farrow had been the most shady, underhanded, uh, unethical, you know, slipshod uh, job ever in his reporting of Matt Lauer and that this led to Lauer's firing. Um, 
my response will be okay. And if you're waiting for me to get upset about that, Matt Lauer, you 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 know should not hold your breath. Um, it's intriguing that Lauer was given. Like, I, you know, there are some folks over at Media I, I like a great deal. Others I don't know from Adam, and I'm not fond of. I don't know if the world needed to hear from Matt Lauer on this. I I, I certainly wasn't looking forward to it. Um, it's very tough not to believe that this is some sort of effort on Matt Lauer's part to make a comeback. The interesting is that when Lauer's column came out, various other folks said that there are people in the television news industry who believe that Lauer got railroaded. I have not seen any evidence to suggest that. Uh, all of the little details, like the button on his desk to lock the door, like there were some horrifying stories that came out about Matt Lauer, and I have yet to see anything to indicate that they are uh, not true there. I also note this comes on the heels of Charlie Rose apparently trying to make a comeback at one point. He wanted to uh, restart his interview show, and apparently that project quickly got you know slammed down. This is back in 2018 or so. Um, and also, I would point out that you know late last year, Mark Halperin. Uh, by the way, I should point out Mark Halperin with an E is a very fine novelist and sometimes contributor to National Review. Mark Halperin with an A is the scum of the earth. And it's important to make that distinction. Mark Halperin, by the way, wrote his book and it sold 502 copies in the first week. Uh, thank you to everyone who purchased Between Two Scorpions and everyone else who helped me beat that total by a considerable number. Um, there, lo and behold, there was not an enormous appetite for a comeback of Mark Halperin. Lauer, I, I, I kind of feel, look, we know Lauer made millions upon millions of dollars. He can't need the money. Uh, to to get back into the journalism game. I think he is disgraced and he should stay disgraced and he should stay away. I don't, nothing he indicated in that article suggested that whatever flaws Ronan Farrow has, the idea that he wasn't fair to, um, to Matt Lauer is really not convincing. And I don't know if I'm, besides the fact that with the coronavirus uh, outbreak, et cetera, we have much bigger fish to fry right now. I really don't know if I'm ready to hear the narrative of Matt Lauer, innocent victim in all this. Yeah, I'm just going through here and I do not see any sort of contrition. It's a very long column and I haven't read the whole thing, I must I must say, but he's uh, going into attacking Ronan Farrow mode throughout this whole thing. And uh, I, I don't see that he's uh, addressed his own uh, failings here. So, uh, Jim, one of the things we've seen here uh, with the unraveling of Me Too in the in the Biden environment, I've seen some folks react to this uh, Lauer column and say, uh, now that it's unraveling, uh, some of the folks who gobbled up their own as part of the Me Too movement are looking to rehabilitate their former allies. Uh, not sure if it goes that far, but what do you think? You know, look, it, it, this was almost inevitable that Me Too, which you know exposed an enormous amount of bad behavior by powerful men in the media, but also in politics, also in uh, Hollywood, basically all across uh, you know a, a whole wide variety of corners of society. The moment the bad wordy men, media men list came forward and it conflated accusations of outright rape with, I believe one of the examples was like weird at lunch, right? And, and these very seemingly minor social faux pas getting blurred in with, you know, violent crimes. You knew this was going to end up in a situation where the blurring of the lines between those who were truly egregious and inexcusable and, and, you know, utterly indefensible and those who were in committed much more minor sins, shall we say, uh, the line was going to get blurrier that those who'd committed terrible things were going to insist that they were in that other category. Um, 
you read the New York Times account of Lauer. Uh, I mean, somebody was violently assaulted. There's, there's no two. Somebody came out of the NBC building and, and had to be taken to a hospital in an ambulance. That's not minor. That's not a gray area. That's not somebody being too sensitive or something like that. Um, it is a really deeply frustrating uh, to see people trying to do this. If you're the kind of person who is uh, inherently abusive or, or abusive minded, you're probably going to uh, quickly try to look for any excuse you can possibly find. Uh, it, it's been frustrating to hear, you know, defenders of Joe Biden say, oh, we never meant believe all women, when in fact the slogan for a good portion of the last couple of years was believe all women. But it was always a ridiculous idea. It was always a ridiculous idea to assume that uh, all, vict- you know, all victims were telling the truth, no false accusations ever occurred, and, you know, that the entire process of evaluating evidence was uh, a waste of time or sort of the only sort of thing that... Uh, only lunatics would bother to look for evidence at a time like this. Yeah, at the bottom of this Lauer piece, he uh, says he wonders if Farrow will uh, correct the record, whether his publisher will correct the record. And, and in his final paragraph, he says, in the meantime, I will continue to ask questions and seek answers because ironically, I can thank Ronan for at least one thing. He has reminded me how it feels to do the work I love. If that's not a hint, Jim, I'm not sure what hints are anymore. That's the clearest message since Schwarzenegger said, I'll be back. All right, let's move on to our final crazy martini now. Jim, and we've talked about this from time to time. Democrats love exalting losers. I don't understand it. They just do. Uh, Beto O'Rourke loses to Ted Cruz. Yeah, he did better than any other Democrats done in a statewide race in a long time. But he still lost after fawning national media attention and the biggest campaign war chest, I think, ever in Senate history. Uh, And so then he goes on the Kerouac road tour. And the next thing you know, he jumps into the presidential race for 2020. And the media is absolutely euphoric. Uh, They think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Beto gets in there and he's pretty much a dud, tries to uh, boost up his hopes with uh, increasingly desperate grandstanding tactics at the debates. But uh, ultimately, he runs out of money and, uh, and doesn't become a factor in the campaign at all. He's gone way before anybody actually votes. Uh, now we've, of course, got the Stacey Abrams situation going on. She lost the Georgia governor's race, whether she wants to admit it or not. And uh, now she's getting puff pieces that ought to embarrass any media outlet, much less the Washington Post and New York Times and so forth, where they're talking about her acting like a, a runway model as she takes the stage and comparing her to Robert F. Kennedy and so forth. This is a woman who's only been elected to a state legislature. And uh, Jim, it's, it's, it's very odd. Uh, Hillary's lionized, even though she lost an election that was almost impossible to lose. What do you make of uh, the left? Well, not only just rolling out the red carpet, almost begging Joe Biden to pick Stacey Abrams, but this ongoing fascination with uh, promoting people who lost. Yeah, this counts as our crazy martini, but I, I think you probably more actually characterize it as the weird inexplicable and and kind of you know it, it doesn't make sense on any level martini we, we've talked about stacy abrams in the past how she's a pretty darn weak choice for joe biden um but this for a very long time there was this kind of unwritten rule in in this political process that the more you openly campaigned for to be selected as vice president the less likely you were to get it, it was seen as um that you, you 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 know you wanted to be you didn't want to look too hungry uh, you didn't want to look like you were, were too open about it. You were supposed to say, oh, I'd be honored just to be considered, but I just want to do my part to help my party win back, back the White House, blah, 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 blah. You know, and that you auditioned by doing a good job. The way, you are, you know, the way you made the case for yourself was through your actions and by demonstrating you know, ability to either you know, 
be a really good surrogate for the presidential candidate. Uh, maybe you're really good at fundraising. Maybe you could carry a valuable state that there's some, you know, that you, that make, let other people make the case for you and you yourself are not to, you know, you can effectively argue that since Biden won the nomination, Stacey Abrams basically launched her campaign for vice president. Now, usually there's a reason people don't run for vice president. There's a famous statement about it not being worth a bucket of warm spit. Um, I think that's kind of nonsense in the sense that we've had very powerful vice presidents over the years. We've had not so powerful vice presidents over the years. I think a lot of the job is what you make of it and also what your president, you know, wants you to handle for that. Uh, and with Joe Biden being the age that he is, it's not surprising that maybe more people are interested than normally. Um, but I think what is bizarre, it, you know, Abrams is, is creating this little, you know, social faux pas by openly campaigning. Fine. What's really weird is how much the media is playing along. And as we mentioned, that image of Abrams with a cape <laughs> and with the lighting that is straight out of like the shadow or Batman or something like it was it was the sort of thing where if the Babylon Bee had done that for the first time, we'd say, OK, Babylon Bee, that's a little over the top. The, you know, the, the, that's not really they're not literally portraying her as a superhero. And then the Washington Post goes out and actually portrays her as a superhero. And so I get why Stacey Abrams is doing this. I don't get why the Washington Post and other big media are doing this. And the other thing, which kind of like the, one last explanation of what factor of why this doesn't make sense. Um, besides the fact that Biden has better choices, Biden has better choices that are probably lesser known. Like if the attitude is Biden must select a woman and Biden, you know, would be very wise to select a minority woman. Well, I mean, Congresswoman Val Demings is from Florida. Uh, she was on part of the impeachment. Her, you know, she's very much a dark horse candidate, so to speak. She's under the radar. She's people aren't, you know, but like, this is what, you know, if you're the media, we don't need the 40 millionth profile of Stacey Abrams. And oh, by the way, like all of these things talk about her being a policy wonk. You know, you very rarely hear her actually speaking about things in the form of a policy wonk. Um, occasionally, they assert she could win Georgia. Again, this would probably assume you'd have to uh, demonstrate demonstrate to ability to win a statewide race in Georgia would help, um, particularly if higher turnout in a presidential year. If you're looking for other, you know, semi-swing states or interesting, uh, Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, uh, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. You know, like I, I, you know. Getting, driving up Latino turnout seems like something that might be good for Democrats to do this the presidential year. So even by the standards of the Democrat, like I want you de listeners, I want you to imagine for a moment that the major institutions of the mainstream media are heavily biased against Donald Trump and they really want to see Joe Biden win. Just, I, I know it's shocking. Just, just put that <laughs> idea out there in your head. If you really saw your job is not to inform your public, uh, uh, you know, your, your readers and your audience of new information, but your job is to drive up support for Democrats and you want, you really, really want Joe Biden to win, then your top priority would be, okay, let's find the best possible choice for Joe Biden. And let's, you know, write profiles that spotlight the best possible choices. Now, I don't know if Demings or Cortez Masto or, or Lujan uh, Grisham are, are necessarily better, but I, we know less about them. Right. They've not been on our television screens on a regular basis over the last two years, insisting that they are the true governor of Georgia. Right. I mean, like they, they, there's one of those things like I kind of I don't understand. I don't know whether it's laziness. I don't know whether the Stacey Abrams PR pitch is such a full court press that The Washington Post writes these stories just to get them off their back. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's at work here, but I just know that if I'm a Democrat, I have almost no interest in Stacey Abrams. 
and I have maybe some more, I'd, I'd like to at least know more about other options uh, that check a lot of the same boxes and could probably be more helpful and more likely to carry a state. And I don't see, I see very little of that in the mainstream media. And so um, I don't know if this will necessarily help Trump win, but it just feels like the mainstream, some institutions in the mainstream media are in such an echo chamber that they can't even do what they should be doing if their true goal is to help Joe Biden win the race. Yeah, it's be fascinating to watch. I don't think no matter how hard she pushes, it's going to be Stacey Abrams. In fact, I think Biden's old school enough that it's probably going to hurt her cause. What she may do, though, is push the media discussion of it not just being a female, but a minority female further into uh, into Biden's view. And therefore, I think that makes things look better for Kamala Harris, perhaps, and, and maybe Val Demings, although the nation, unless they really watch the impeachment trial a lot, probably don't know that much about Demings. Uh, Jim, let me throw one other name at you. Uh, that's Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, my home state. Uh, the New York Post with, I think, a little bit of a misleading headline, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in talks to become Joe Biden's VP pick. That makes it sound like it's uh, close to a done deal. Uh, but she said Tuesday on the Today Show, I've had a conversation with some folks. It was just an opening conversation, and it's not something that I would call a professional formalized vetting. So, Jim, given how much of a flashpoint she's been with the the shutdown and the coronavirus and protesters allegedly adding to the extent of the lockdown, did she bring anything other than being the duly elected governor of a state that surprisingly went to the Republicans in 2016? Does she bring anything else to the table? I was about to say, Greg, as you're formulating the question, look, when the last election came down to Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and there is a Democratic woman governor of Michigan, that figure is going to get serious consideration, um, even if she has two heads, right? <laughs> you know, that's just, you know, oh, yeah, they could deliver that, deliver that state, that's the state we need, you know, uh, maybe help drive up turnout amongst women across the country. Yes, let's do it. Um, you know, there's, there's, that's, she's going to be on the short list just because of where she's from and who she is, uh, you know, by, by itself. That having been said, I've heard comparisons of John McCain and Sarah Palin. Um, and I, I just don't think that's the wisest choice. I also think that uh, based on how Whitmer, like, let's face it, most people outside the state of Michigan had not heard much about Gretchen Whitmer since, before the year began. Uh, only elected in 2018, hadn't made a ton of uh, controversial decisions that would attract a lot of attention outside the state. Now, most conservatives have heard of her and they see her very much as one of the villains of this uh, pandemic lockdown. You know, this is this, the idea of having her a heartbeat away from the presidency and not just any heartbeat, Joe Biden's heartbeat away from the presidency probably could get a whole bunch of conservatives who have all kinds of problems with Trump to say, okay, wait, whoa, whoa, he's really taxing my patience, but she's going to tax us into oblivion. The idea of President Gretchen Whitmer will probably drive a whole bunch of Republicans to hold their nose and pull the lever for Trump come November. I don't think she'd be the pick, but, uh, you know, there's always a You never quite know how these decisions are going to come down. Um, my guess is that somebody like uh, Amy Klobuchar gives you most of the advantages and less of the disadvantages there. But, uh, you know, I guess it remains to be seen, Greg. Yeah, for turn to normalcy is what you're after. Gretchen Whitmer's not the, the way to go. But uh, we should point out that Gretchen Whitmer's got even more on her plate now. Uh, Mid-Michigan dealing with a ton of flooding. A lot of rain in Michigan this week. And then in the uh, Midland County area, two different dams have failed now. And so uh, some areas are seeing up to uh, several feet of water in the streets. I think at least 10,000 people have been evacuated. So uh, Trump says he's on it as well. Uh, not sure how the press will blame him for dams in Michigan being breached, but I'm sure they'll find some way to do it. But Jim, obviously, uh, people being displaced from their homes at a time 
right now where there are so many other restrictions in place that uh, adds to the stress and it uh, creates logistical issues as well. Fortunately, I haven't heard anything about any lives lost and let's hope it stays that way. On that note, we'll sign off for today. We'll see you again on Thursday. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Thanks for being with us today and join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.